how to set your lineup and work the waiver wire during the first two weeks of the season, plus how fantasy managers should handle Fernando Tatis on the trading front right now. We'll do waiver wire, pitcher preview, mailbag, and more with guest Glenn Colton next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Witnessed a uh, hit-by-pitch walk-off where it was really a strike thrown. Did you see the Met game today earlier? I did, and I realized from now on, as long as you beat your elbow into it, you usually win, but actually it'll depend on the judge. That's what I learned from this game. <laughs> uh, crazy. But, you know, with with the Mets... I, I tend to find that they have pretty bad luck in general, so I'm I'm good with getting one break. I I, I don't know if you're a, you're a pessimistic Met fan like me uh, with, with that. Always expecting, the, hoping the, hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. That's the way we are. Uh, that's the way we roll as Met fans. Well, yes. well said, Ruvain. Um, joining us today from the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Fantasy Radio and Fantasy Alarm. Please welcome Glenn Colton. How are you, Glenn? Doing very well. Thrilled to be on with you guys again. It has been way too long. Yeah, fantastic. I, you know, just with last year, with the whole 60-game season, it, it feels like there's been some kind of void from everyone seeing each other and everyone getting together and talking with each other. It really, I really feel, uh, feel I, I missed something in the last two years. Oh, definitely. So This is the first year I haven't traveled to go to a labor draft since 2002. Um, I've been going to either Arizona or Florida, uh, you know, basically 20 years in a row. And this year it's a complete void where I just spent, you know, 30 hours on the telephone with the Wolfman getting ready and actually doing salary cap drafts. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, but I'm so glad to be back. We did, Reuven and I did one live auction this year. Um, that was really exciting because everything else has been online, which which is good, but not as great. I, I much prefer the live versions. It felt normal. That's what it did. It felt yeah. normal. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait. And, you know, we could do a whole podcast on the difference between auction strategies when you're in the room and not. But you really, it's really hard to do that, you know, read the tells of your, um, you know, your opponents and to do nonverbal bidding and all that stuff is, which I think we're pretty good at. That's just out the window when you're uh, doing the online version. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I try to hypnotize my opponents, if you can believe that. Uh, you certainly can't do that online. It just doesn't work um, <laughs> for, obviously, for obvious reasons. Yeah, you can. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is when I uh, go to two, uh, on a pitcher that Eno Saris uh, of the Athletic really loves, and then he can't bid three because he doesn't have the money, and I just look at him and I just wink at him, and he just gets <laughs> so upset. <laughs> uh, He's I, a phenomenal I miss that. player and a great guy, so you know it's just fun. Yeah, well, hopefully 2022 we'll get that back. By the way, it's been a week since uh, we started and we had the draft season. Do you have any regrets that uh, players that you drafted that you're like, oh, why did I? Why was I overexposed to this guy? Why did I spend five leagues? I I, I roster a certain person or do you have any regrets from the draft season 
You know, I have some regrets, not because I have too many shares of a particular player, because the way in which Rick and I do our drafts is we basically eliminate so many players that we don't want. It's it's not that, okay, if Aaron Judge is a $40 player, it's not like we wouldn't invest 20, but we just know we'll never get him at 20, so we don't spend any time on him, that kind of thing. So the players we end up with are largely the players we want. I'll tell you in October whether we wanted the right players or not. Um, but my biggest regret is I have a number of teams where I didn't get one of the top four or five closers, the, the, one of the very few pitchers in Major League Baseball that you know are going to close. Um, we did a whole thing with Jen Piacente and, and Steve Gardner on the Colton Wolf this week going roundtable. Who do you count on as, as a closer? And the list was very, very short. So I, I would have liked to have more Chapman, more Diaz, uh, even more Ryan Presley. And there are some teams where I'm just going to be doing spitting and, and, and scotch tape the whole year. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I heard that segment that you did on SiriusXM the other day. Um, I, I have Edwin Diaz on every single team that I have, pretty much, uh, except for the one that I'm playing you in in GDD. A little bit nice. different because that's a that's a daily lineups league, so it's a little bit different. Well, I'll make you feel better. GDD, our closer was Trevor Rosenthal, so that oh. did not work out. Yikes! And it's the uh, and it's there's no Fab reclaim in that league, so uh, right. The good news is in Tau Wars, we have a a $4 Jake Diekman. So perfect. The the injury gods giveth and taketh away. Yeah, that's what happens. But on average, hopefully, we we do well. Uh, Ruben, any any regrets for you for for this season? Yeah, I think we, I think as both of us together, I think we have too many, we drafted too many guys who were injured or possibility of injuries. And it's really uh, showing itself right now. Like we were talking before the show about how we're a little bit concerned about how not great we're doing right now. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that we have a lot of guys who are injured. Like we have a lot of shares of Cole Calhoun. We have shares of Denelson Lamette who, who hasn't played yet. We even have some shares of, of Nate Pearson just because we think he's going to come back and we got, we think we got a good price on him. But having them now, it's very, very hard to watch your team flounder and just wait for those guys to come back. I think that's one issue. Another issue is, again, we have to be Met fans, but we have a lot of Mets on our team just because the values seem to have been there. And again, having a lot of players from one team, the Mets missed the first weekend of the season because of COVID, because of the Nationals. And you know what? We've fallen behind in the stack category for every single one. And not only that, those games are going to be made up with seven inning games instead of nine inning games. And it's just a lot tougher to come back from that. Yeah, that, that Mets anomaly, though, truly was an anomaly. We usually make it a point not to take Mets or Yankees. Yeah, um, but it, it just happened that the way the numbers fell out, we have a lot of shares of Diaz. We have a lot of shares of of um, Jeff McNeil because we wanted to shore up our batting average, that type of thing. And right now, those guys are not doing what they were supposed to do. Yeah, for us, we're also a little bit overexposed to Trent Grisham. Uh, we didn't know the extent of the injury there. He seemed to have a pretty good price for steals. Usually you have to overpay for steals. He was pretty reasonable. Uh, so that, that was a little bit of a, an issue. But, you know, I, I don't have any big regrets. I think uh, I, I don't have enough shares of Jake McGee. He's somebody who was really cheap that um, I think is going to get a couple saves in the first month for sure. Uh, so that's somebody I would have liked to have more. Uh, our strategy section today, I want to talk about using preseason projections uh, and and. What period of time do we still count on them? I mean, most of us, I I know we do, we take the ATC projections and, you know, we do some alterations, but by and large, we use them as our base. And now you come to the season, you already have your team. The question is, at what point do you throw them out? At what point do you still try to use the projections and say, hey, wait a minute, 
you know, I, I spent all off-season preparing, and after one week, I'm not going to say that this guy is terrible. I spent so much time evaluating that he's good. Like, at what point do you rely less on your preseason evaluations, and do you move to what's actually happening now or scouting reports, uh, things like that? Glenn, what, 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 what do you think? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm not a big projections guy. I will use them as, as a tool. I, I love your system, you know, Ariel, the ATC, and, and Derek Cardi's the bat. And I will certainly look at what you guys are projecting for a player. Um, and sometimes the number will surprise me, and I'll dig into why, because usually you guys have a pretty good reason to why you come to a particular result. Uh, but, but in our team, uh, Rick Wolf is much more of a a projections guy, and I'm much more of a soft data um, and looking for trends and, and looking for guys who are going to pop or guys who are going to way underperform. So I don't worry about the, the preseason projections once the season starts at all. What I do really try hard to do is not get away from my preseason evaluations. Just to give you a classic example, you know, I believed in, especially in deep AL only uh, leagues, Kyle Gibson having both in labor and tout wars. I like the ballpark. Uh, the, there's, there's a lot of things to like in the, in the ground ball rate historically, in the swing strike rate historically. And he got bombed out in the first start. It was a disaster. But you kind of hold the line. It's a guy you could cut. It didn't do it. Came out and pitched a very good game the second time. So really trying very hard not to re overreact in the short term. That's the biggest thing. If you like, you did two, three months worth of homework, you liked a guy for reasons, stick with it more than a week. Right. Ruvain, uh, do you feel that way? And maybe is there a distinction for you between guys who are starting hot versus guys who are starting really cold? Well, I, for, the, for the projection thing, it's really depending on um, what, how your team is constructed. If you have a lot of, if you go for a lot of prospects, then you know what? Maybe you'll have a little more patience with the team. But when you have more of a, a veteran, quote unquote, veteran team where you don't take too many risks, then you bit you get a little bit more concerned. You get a little bit more nervous. Usually, the hitters you want to wait about a month. You'll have an idea about a month or so in. You'll know exactly what you're getting from the hitter. I mean, there are the the um, d exceptions to the rule, like Matt Carpenter a couple of years ago when he didn't hit for the first two months, and all of a sudden he made his salsa, and then he was perfect. But then you have the guys like this year, Akil Badu, Nate Lowe. They're doing stuff. They don't really have that much of a track record. How do you know if they're going to keep it up for the whole year? This may be a couple of weeks. It may be a couple of months they do it. You have no idea. And are you going to spend so much money of your fab to pick these up? Because a lot of uh, Nate Lowe may not as be available as much leagues. But Akil Badu, he's been available. He wasn't even drafted in most, in most leagues. So you can't really go by the pr projections for those guys because they're already breaking the mold of what the projections are supposed to be. Yeah, no, I'm 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 with you. Um, it, it, I'd say about a month is the right, about the right time where I I start switching more to more in season only valuation. Uh, for me, if if a player is slumping and I can make a case to see his his BABIP really low as a hitter, um, you know, is that something? Maybe his strikeout and walk rate seems reasonable, but he's having bad luck. Um, I'll give the benefit of the doubt and, you know, go back to what the projections say for about a month's time. For pitchers, about four, four, four to five starts. Um, it really gives you a good idea. Uh, uh, strikeouts and walks stabilize pretty well after about four or five starts for a pitcher. Uh, and that, to me, is the, the best indication. If you want to pick up a guy off the waiver wire, 
I just sort by K minus BB, and that gives you your very one-click, one-stop, you know, pick up a good guy to get. You know, um, that gives you really good indication. Um, but yeah, I, I don't just revert to to what's going on now. But on the other hand, if you miss some hot start by a player in the first two weeks, and somebody else snatches them up, you might be missing out on a, a game changer. So I, while I won't dismiss projections, if I didn't really recognize a player, I mean, like you, Glenn, I don't go through every single player. I don't have time. We start, we start with the ATC projections and use the market as a tool to say, well, there's no way we're going to go anywhere near this player. It's so much lower in the market. The market is so much higher than the ATC projection. But there's some players that we don't know. Uh, uh, Badu, I, I, I really didn't recognize him before, but you got to at least turn your head and look at what he's doing. Cedric Mullins was pretty low on projections, but he's got the leadoff spot in Baltimore. So you have to recognize that. And remember, this is now in season. So I'd say in addition to just calling it projections versus in season, I think the playing time is a big distinction that you got to look right away. The role. is Does the closer have the role? Is the guy batting second? Jorge Polanco is another example of a player who – pretty low in draft boards, but look where he's batting in the Minnesota lineup, and he looks pretty good so far. Uh, things like that you have to pick up and be able to go off of what your preseason notion is really quickly. Yeah, you know, I'd jump in here and I'll say I agree with what you're saying, but you got to be careful that you really dig a little bit deeper than saying, okay, Polanco is hitting second. Yeah, but, you know, Buxton spent time on the shelf. Kepler's been banged up. Donaldson is hurt. So is he really going to keep that spot? when these guys come back, and by the way, Nelson Cruz couldn't play in the first series because it was in the National League Park. So there are a lot of reasons in my mind to question whether Polanco is going to hold that spot um, because they've had injuries. But your point about looking to see if somebody has established a new role or maybe has a new skill, a new a new pitch, um, has their exit velocity back, has their you know, fastball velocity back. Those are things that I think are, are really interesting. And also, you know, we tend to discount spring performance. Um, I remember, I'm trying to remember who the player was. I think it was Yonder Alonso, who uh, a few springs back raised his um, launch angle dramatically. And to me, it's like, okay, he did that in, in, you know, the Cactus League, so what? When it started to show up in the regular season, you say, hmm, this might be a different player. Yeah. A fair point on Polanco, by the way. Uh, but of course, Byron Buxton will stay healthy all season long. Of course, of course he will. Uh, well, my yeah. labor, my labor team certainly hope so. Yes, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no fair point about that. But again, uh, the, use the example I gave more as a what should you do, even if you don't agree exactly with the person. Uh, pitcher velocity. Uh, Taiwan Walker today up about two three miles an hour from last year, which is a fantastic sign, uh, and he looked great today. Uh, things like that. He did. Yeah. Let me ask you guys, do you think the guns are running hot? I mean, I watch, obviously, a lot of baseball, and it kind of feels to me like the guns are a little high. They're running a little hot. You know, really like thought about that. Shohei Otani over 100 miles an hour over and over again. I, I mean, he was throwing hard, but it didn't look like he was throwing like Chapman. Yeah. I, I don't have the, the definitive proof to tell you otherwise. I mean, I've seen people who have had uh, velocity declines year over year, so I, you know, it's not like everybody is is going one direction. Um, but yeah, it, it, if I had to estimate, I'd say it feels a, a tad hot. It does. 
Yeah, just watch out, folks, because if you see, oh, so-and-so player's up half a, half a mile per hour or a mile per hour, it might not be telling you as much as you think it is. That's really the only point I'm making. Now, one, th- one thing also I think we should learn from what's going on in the early part of the season, a lot of these players who are excelling right now have been Rule 5 picks, Rule 5 draft picks. And a lot of times they have to stay on the roster, otherwise they have to return to the team. The guy, Yermin Hernand, uh, Mercedes from the White Sox, he was a Rule 5 guy. Badul, he was a Rule 5 guy. These guys are going to stay on the roster. So they're going to have some sort of a role because the teams like them and they, and they pick them out. So, you know, sometimes we have to watch out. I think this is for the future years that if we see someone's a Rule 5 pick and they're getting, you know, they're, they're going to get an opportunity to play because they're going to be on the roster. They can't get kicked off. They can't get sent down or anything like that. Maybe those guys are some of the guys we should watch more in spring training or keep an eye on more just to see how they're going to get their what type of role they're going to have on their team a, a great point for, from Ruvain, i would say take it a step further a rule five guy on a team that's projected to be bad like detroit has even more motivation to let him play oh that a thousand percent i mean in general prospects are going to look a little bit different this year because they didn't have the minors last year you might have some people who developed in the alternate sites that you have no idea about and you don't know what their progression was because we don't have the minor league stats there was none so you're going to see some jumps in ability that you wouldn't be able to project or know about but you'll see it because it happened while they're at the alternate sites things like that um talk about about trading um you know i know a lot of people love love to trade it's their game uh i actually just played tennis uh, uh the other night with ian khan uh, uh, did you? Me. I did. Yeah, he invited nice. me up to uh, his place uh, uh, in uh, New, not upstate New York. He lives in the Bronx. So, uh, uh, but I live in West Hempstead, uh, Long won? Island. Who so, won? huh? Who won? Who won? Uh, yeah. so, uh, somebody won. I don't know. Oh, okay. I, okay. He won. He's a pretty good tennis player. I, I am far less good a tennis player. Uh, but anyways, I, I mentioned him because he uh, is a big trader, and I'm sure he's working on schemes right now to to trade. My question to you is, you know, are, are you a big trader, and what what are you looking to accomplish post draft and in the first two weeks of the season? Is there anything that you're looking for to do? You know, I don't usually make a lot of uh, trades in the first few weeks of the season, with a couple of exceptions. If you have a big injury. Um, then you know you sort of your team is different than what you expected it to be Um, or if um, you know you came out of the draft knowing you had a hole um, those are times where I might look to do it or in a third situation where one of your late picks became something different than what you expected I'll just make this up if you would have drafted an Edwin Diaz and and Roldis Chapman and and you also have you know Reyes uh, now you've got more saves than you thought you had. It was it's a time to you know try to unload some of that and get value for it. But generally, I don't try to trade early on because most of the time we go into drafts and auctions with a plan. We follow the plan. We accomplish the plan. So at least in the first few weeks, we're still believing in the plan. Yeah, and there's there's an information problem. I mean, if if you paid fifteen dollars for a player at the auction. It means that you thought that he was worth $15 or more, and nobody else did. And conversely, somebody else paid 15 for a different player. Because you didn't think it was worth it, they did. So it's hard to trade like-for-like value because you all have different 
versions of what you think the valuation of a player is. Um, the only thing I can see really uh, so early on, other than injury, which we understand that could happen, um, is uh, low-end positional or statistical flexibility. If you have maybe three corner infielders on your bench and somebody else is sitting with three middle infielders, you know, why not swap one just so that you each can get more positional flexibility and help each other out and start the grounds for some good trade dialogue for later in the year? Or the same thing, statistics. If you have uh, possibly a, uh, a power hitter and the other guy, uh, you have a couple of power hitters, the other guy has a couple of speedsters, why not swap? But, uh, Ruvain, uh, what about you? Any uh, ideas about trading the first couple of weeks? Yeah, just looking to bolster your roster depth. A lot of times at this time point in the season, I mean, there are so many injuries coming up already, so many holes that a lot of teams have that sometimes um, if you don't have enough of corner infielders, may want to, uh, you know, take a risk on a corner infielder. You have to look, re-examine your bench and see what you have and see what you can work with for the next couple of weeks because this is the time to get some of these players on the cheap. A lot of them, you get some of them on the cheap. Some of them, you're not going to be at them, you know, they're not going to be cheap later on. So you have to try to anticipate what the market's going to be based on the injury aspect of the entire MLB, which is uh, so many people are getting hurt already. It's crazy. Um, so you have to look at that and also look at the time frame. Right now, the prospects like Jared Kalenic, they're down. What's going to happen when he does get called up? Or do you have someone on your team that's going to lose playing time if he comes up? Or any of the other prospects that after the, toward the end of April, these guys may be off your team. You may want to think about getting rid of them if you think that another player is going to be called up. You know, you try to anticipate what's going to happen. Try to be ahead of the market. Um, before we talk about a little bit more about trading, there was uh, a pretty serious injury. Fernando Tatis. Well, let, you know what? Before we do that, let's do the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Funny you should bring up Fernando Tatis because the trivia happens to be about Fernando Tatis. Last year, he played in 57 games during the shortened season. The question is, how many errors did he make during the course of the 57 games? Any idea? Glenn? Well, I'm, I'm not going to look it up as much as I obviously could. Um, so I'm just going to stick my finger in the air and say three. You hit it right on the target. Nice. He had exactly three errors wow. last year, the entire 57 games. The reason why I bring it up is because this year he's already had five. Five errors, and that's already more than 24 teams have for the entire season for now. Okay, just, just to put that in perspective, he has two fielding errors and three throwing errors. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because we all saw him get injured with a, with a shoulder subluxation. It's happened three times to him in the past three weeks, fielding, diving, and now swinging. Um, it's showing up more and more, and it's a chronic thing. I think it's going to be a chronic thing that's going to require surgery. You may be able to hide it in a swing where he doesn't have to swing as hard, but you're seeing it in the fielding. You're seeing that he's not getting, not throwing the way he's normally doing. He's not feeling the way he's doing, and he's a liability in the field, which makes me think that he's not going to be playing that much more this season. That's just my hunch on it because Number one, it's not good for the team because he's making all these errors. He's not swinging. He's going to be thinking about the shoulder every time he swings. And number two, they just signed him to this massive, massive contract. Yes, I know people are – he have to, you have to think long-term. You have to think short-term. You can rest this, but resting it, it's going to happen again unless it gets fixed. Yeah, no, I and, and I take your word pretty seriously, Ruvain, on, on this uh, thought, uh, which, um, you know, thinks that – 
I think most of the market or most people looking at the situation, I don't think is as pessimistic. I think people heard, oh, don't worry, he doesn't need surgery right now. Great, maybe he'll come back. Maybe he'll come back in 10 days. And I, I think that's, that's a little bit too naive. But uh, I, I would also venture that it's going to be longer than you think. But worse than that, what's he going to be when he comes back? I mean, you saw the five errors so far. Um, he's not right. And after not being right in the first five games, then he did more damage and tore his labrum. Uh, I, I'm a little bit pessimistic. I, any thoughts on that, Glenn, with, uh, with what you make of the whole Tatis situation? Well, we have absolutely no shares of Tatis. Um, fabulous talent, going to be a, a star in this league, I think, for a long time. But he had never played a full 162-game season or even you know, 140, 150 games. He hadn't produced a full season's worth of superstar stats. So to us, there was no way we were going to pass on an Acuna, on a, on a Turner, on a Betts, on a Trout for, for Tatis. So we have none of that. So the fact that, you know, a guy who's been getting hurt, hurt again, I hate to see it, but I'm not surprised by it. So for, for us, we weren't willing to invest when he was healthy. So there's no chance we're investing now. Right. If you were somebody who did own Tatis, which you weren't, and Ruben and I don't have any shares for pretty much the same reason. I mean, uh, Mookie Betts, Juan Soto, those guys are, I much prefer top of the draft, and somebody else preferred Tatis every time. Certainly in an auction, I wasn't willing to go over $40, and he went for 50 um, If you were an owner right now, um, there's some point at which it makes sense to trade a player, and at some point it makes sense not to trade a player that you're just usurping too much value and you're out of it. Um, what what advice would you give to people on uh, looking to make a trade? I mean, certainly if you're going to trade for Trey Turner, that's a slam dunk, right? Everyone would agree that. If you're going to trade for um, so Elvis Andrus, I mean, that's a no because you're just forfeiting your entire value right then and there. The question is, where where is the happy medium, and what would you be looking to accomplish that is realistic in for uh, Tatis if you're going to trade you him? You know, if you rostered him, you probably really love what he brings to the table. You're attached to what he brings to the table. So it's really hard emotionally to give up and only take, you know, um, 60%. Uh, on the dollar or 50 cents on the dollar. But I think that's all you can probably get for him. I think that when you move two months from now and you can see where your team is really sitting with four months to go and you'll know, okay, I've got a team that can win as is with small tinkering. and I, Or I've got a team that really needs to catch lightning in a bottle to win. If it's the latter part, then I think you're willing to take a bigger gamble on rostering Tatis. Right now, I don't see him getting traded in fantasy leagues very much at all because if you rostered him, you're still holding out hope that you get the real Tatis for five months and, and your emotion is saying that's the case. So I don't see him moving a lot. I don't see a lot of people being able to pull it off. Keeper leagues, dynasty leagues, totally different. Right, right. That's true. I did a poll on Twitter, and I asked the, the question uh, to the market on both sides. I asked uh, if you're a seller, what would you be able, what would you be willing to accept? Ten cents on the dollar, fifty cents, eighty cents on the dollar. Like, what is the most? You, what is the, the least you'd accept? And I also asked it on the buyer side. Uh, if you had X, 
you know, would you offer that person for Tatis? And I gave choices. Would you offer Lindor? Would you offer Tim Anderson, Javier Baez, Carlos Correa, all the way down to Tommy Edmond? Uh, it's funny that um, what I see here is an opportunity for actually a good trading market. I think that the average seller would sell, you'd be surprised, for about 55 cents on the dollar. The average buyer is actually willing to trade for about a 67% discount. So they'll trade uh, a Carlos Correa, they'll trade a Dansby Swanson type player um, for him. Uh, but on the other side, people are, are I think are going to be willing to accept somewhere uh, uh, on that uh, on the order of about 55 cents. Um, but not just the average numbers that I'm telling you. There's a big spread. We had a nice quarter of the people who are are willing to trade uh, all the way up top. You know, oh, sure, I'll do Lindor, no problem, to get Tatis. Uh, and on the bottom side, for the for the buyers, uh, people, some people are willing to trade $0.10 cents on the dollar for him. I think I got about 40% of the crowd willing to trade for $0.33 cents or less. Um, be, being at, as it be with a big spread in the market results and a pretty close average result, I think that if you wanted to look for a trade, you can find somebody in your league that's willing to give you something really, really good. I mean, personally, I would if I had Tatis, I'd be fine with about 60, 55, 60 cents on the dollar, uh, being that, you know, I think that he's probably more hurt than other people think. I would love to have Gleyber Torres or Javier Baez. I would be willing to trade that. I mean, to me, there's some costs involved. Um, because he's injured, I mean, his value rest of season – you're losing 25 cents on the dollar right from the start. And to go the little bit more to get certainty, remember, when you roster Tatis, it's because you you want that certainty of stats at the top. If you're going to go from a certainty of stats to, I don't know what the heck I'm going to get, you're giving up a lot of risk on your, you're adding a lot of risk on your team that your team probably can't handle. So I would be trading for about 55 cents on the dollar if, 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 if I could. Oh, what I would add is also, if you're going to try to trade him, I would trade him within the next week or two before any more news comes out. Because right now they're saying, oh, he doesn't need surgery. This is the time when you have to trade him. Because if you wait two, three more weeks, some more news may come out saying that he's not progressing the way he wants. And then he may really opt for surgery. And then you're going to be really in trouble because you're not going to get anything for him. And what's, let's say you see him on the waiver wire. What happens if someone says, you know what? I, I, I don't want to have to deal with this. I think he's going to need surgery like someone like me. And I say, you know what? I'm going to drop him. Who's going to pick him up and have him on the roster and sit there? I'm sure a lot of people will. So that means that he does have some trade value out there. Well, I would pick him up in a heartbeat if he was if he was cut by someone. But the other thing, guys, the really important factor is what kind of league are you in? So I would be much more willing to take on, you know, the risk of missing Tatis for two months, three months in a 12-team mixed league where maybe my shortstop would then for a couple of months be a D.D. Gregorius type than I would in an NL only where it's, you know, it's not even going to be Brandon Crawford. It's going to be, um, you know, somebody who uh, doesn't play at all, basically. 
Oh, 100%. Everything is always context-dependent, uh, and uh, I totally agree with that. The, the smaller the league size, um, the replacement level goes up. That means that the, the difference between Tatis and the replacement is greater. It means that when you're trading, um, you, you know, you're still, you're, the value of Tatis sitting and doing nothing is greater, right? You, you'd need a lot more to, to make a trade in a 12-team league than in a 15-team mixed or, or in a mono league. That's a hundred percent true. Uh, obviously, you know, polls out to Twitter is a very general se- sense, and everybody's playing in a different league just to get the idea. But hundred percent really depends on where you are. Let's talk a little bit about um, what you do in the first week in terms of setting your fantasy lineups. Um, does it differ for you, Glenn, what you're doing and you're accomplishing in your first week versus what you're doing later on in the year? Oh, yeah. I mean, in a number of ways. I mean, later on in the year, you have to really be watching the categories. And, uh, you know, if you're ahead by 300 strikeouts, you're not chasing the strikeouts, you're managing your ratios, you know, things like that. Um, But at the beginning of the year, I am really looking at, especially on the pitching side, I'm much more willing to have many more relief pitchers and much more willing to have these guys who are going to come in in the, you know, fourth inning inning than I am when the, the season gets rolling, um, you know, because not that many pitchers are going to go six, seven innings and, and really maximize their chances for wins and, and, and big time strikeout levels. So I'm much more willing to go for the relief pitchers. And the other thing is um, I want to avoid, if I can, the pitchers who are going to pitch in really bad weather at the beginning of the year, you know. If you have Luis Castillo, you're going to pitch him. But it was pretty predictable that he might have a bad outing in super, super cold weather. So I try to watch out for pitchers I know are going to be pitching in really cold weather, especially pitchers who did not grow up in cold weather. Yeah, no, all, all good points. I, I agree. Ruvain, anything to add? Yeah, for the hitting aspect, I would play all my regulars, not worry about anything except for rookies. Usually rookies I tend to shy away from for the first week of the season because you don't know what you're going to get. Usually for them, for most guys, if you're not, if the second year, third year, fourth year guys, you have a basic idea what you're going to get from them. Rookies, you don't know if you're going to have two home runs, three home runs that week, or they're going to hit 100 and then you put on the bench. Look at Andrew Vaughn. He's not getting that much playing time. People started him. They say, oh, he's going to start in left field. No one knows what you're going to get from him. No one knows what what his true role is. If you stick with more known commodities during the first week for hitting, I think that works out. And to just build on Glenn's point a little bit, when you're talking about um, the middle relievers and starting that, you have to start as many closers as you can because right now they have the jobs. Jake McGee, he has a job. You got to play him. All these guys, even on, on the lower teams, you got to play them because they have. They, this is the time when closers have the most job security, and this is when you can get the most out of them. Yeah, and I'll put it in the context of risk uh, and variance. Um, everyone says, you know, closers are so variable. They, they, you don't know if they're going to start the year. You don't know if they're going to finish the year. Clo- closers are highly variable. But uh, baked in that, the variability is backloaded, right? The, the, at the start of the year, at when they have the role, or at least, you know, in a couple of years ago, everyone had a role, right? Uh, they have the role until they lose it. And even though they might be bad, they might still get the save, or at least they'll get the next couple of shots. I mean, Anthony Bass gave up another blown save today, but he might still get another shot at closing, closing the game. So in terms of the variability, if, you, if it's backloaded, throw your closers out now and throw less starters now. You can always swap them later and have less closers later 
and more starters later. In fact, that's a good idea because I don't want a sixth, seventh starter in my roster who I don't know how they're throwing much other than spring training, really damaging my ERA in the very first week of the season. I'd rather have five starters, throw a couple of closers if you're able to draft an extra one, and plug the rest with middle relievers so that you keep your ratios as intact as you can. And you'll see as you go on, do you need more strikeouts? Well, throw in an extra starter. Maybe you need to throw in some extra two-star pitchers. Maybe that'll help you. And you can do that because you've built up a nice base in the ERA and whip. Uh, so I, I will agree with that and, and play it that way as well. How does setting your fab claim amounts differ in the first week versus in the rest of the year? Do you have a like a, a different plan the first week versus what you do uh, the rest of the year? Or, or maybe I'll ask the question of, you know, how are you budgeting fabs in the month of April, if that's a better way to ask it? Yeah, I mean, my view of that is don't go down the middle. Go big or go home. So you should really look and say, it's not that I have a full budget because you're going to get players that are going to become closers. You're going to get them these minor leaguers that come up and you know you're going to want them. And of course, you're going to have the trades into the league in the middle of the season if you're in a, in a mono league. Um, so you either decide there's a player I really need and I'm going to just go out and spend or just save your resources, but don't play it down the middle. So if you're a team with no, you know, with no saves, um, maybe you're a Rosenthal, uh, you know, a team that rostered Rosenthal or something like that, or a Karinchak who now doesn't look like he's closing. Um, you, you know, maybe you say, okay, I'm going to blow out the budget for Reyes or Merriweather or something like that. Uh, but unless you see something you really, really need, don't just say, ah, you know, I have a hundred, so I'll just go seven or eight on this guy. Go big or go home. All right. Ruven, you agree? No, I'm actually the complete opposite here. Um, I like to save my money for later. Um, I don't want to overreact and spend too much money now on a guy who may not have a role a month from now. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So I try to save my money. I mean, in my TGFBI league, someone spent 300 and something dollars on Merriweather to close. He wasn't even the projected closer. Yes, he has good stuff, and his, his numbers look great, but he's been a closer for all of one week, and you're spending almost a third of your budget on it. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. I understand. Okay, you have a closer now, for now, and he's on a good team. That's great. But you know, there will be so many other opportunities to get closers. You're going to have so many other holes in your roster throughout the course of the year. I would save that money for later, unless you have a catastrophic injury. Like, let's say you do have Fernando Tatis, and you need someone to fill them in. You know, you need a, a filler there. Then I'd spend the money, big money on somebody. But otherwise, I'm holding my money. I'm going to take. I'm going to be very conservative early on. And if I have a glaring need, then I'll be more aggressive early on. Yeah, just to be clear, though, right, I didn't say I was going to blow out the budget. I said either do it or don't. I right. said don't put right. yourself in a hole by doing, you know, a mid-level bid, which is still going to put you in sixth place and the most fab for a big guy coming in. Either if you're going to if you're going to put yourself in a hole, do it or no, not about being, at all. Being aggressive. Either be aggressive or don't do it at all. That's what Correct. you're Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit more uh, next week with Vlad Sedler about uh, fab. I mean, for me, I always take a look at the economic approach and say, listen, uh, you know, you have draft capital that you've used. You also have fab capital. And for every dollar, I want to have a good return on investment. When you're bidding 30% of your fab on a closer, historically, you will not do well. 
I, I, you won't. And if you're doing that the first week of the season, um, when you don't know what your needs are going to be later on in the season, and who knows about Merriweather, and who knows if you're going to need another closer, that's just a very bad. You're not going to generate a good return on investment. I found that closers are best um, f- are best returned at some 10 to 15 percent maximum of your budget in the year. Of course, the cheaper way to get closers are because they come up during the year is to get somebody who's next in line, but grab them a few weeks earlier if you see somebody struggling or hold somebody as a handcuff. Like Mike Mayer on uh, on uh, Los Angeles, he's pitching great so far. Iglesias probably is a closer, not pitching so great so far. He's going to be the next in line. Maybe if you have the room, you grab him now for free. And when you have a $1 purchase on your fab out of 1000 your return on investment is going to be sky high, right? I, I always look at, you know, I want the biggest return per my dollar spent. Um, I, I bid on Merriweather. I, I did, but I threw out $30 out of my 1000 because at $30, it is a good investment. Uh, it, I can get a good return. And I, there, I all the closers, I threw out any of the potential closers for $30, $40. I was okay with not winning the, the award, but I wanted to keep any bid I have with a good return on investment. Remember, if every single bid that you have has a good return on investment over time, you're going to do well with your FAB budget. Of course, you, there's needs in the season. You have an injury. You need a closer. You need somebody. So a portion of your FAB budget should be spent on needs. For the rest of it, I, I like to use mine wisely and always try to save a little bit for the end so that you can have a little bit of a hammer in August and September to get those extra starts, those two-star pitchers, and you know to have the hammer so you can get any need that really comes up at the end. Now, there's one other thing I want to say about we're talking about these closers. This is an interesting fact, and I just want everyone to know this because this is very important. We, pay, we played, there's been one week of the season so far, 36 different people have a save. 36 and as at the time of this taping five teams haven't had any saves yet so to put that in perspective 36 players have saves out of 26 teams so who has what role nobody knows what's going on right now everything is still so in flux and if you're going to spend so much money on a closer now just like you said Ariel, you're not going to get the return investment because does he have the job does he have the job this week yes does he have it next week you don't know because everything is just so in flux right now which also props up the point that in your draft, the right strategy this year would have been go big or go home. Get that lockdown closer like Diaz, like Hendricks, like Chapman, or just take the little, little low stabs and take as many of them as you can. But don't go in that middle because it's just a bad return on investment area. It's funny that you say that because our Tout Wars American League team uh, has, uh, we drafted three relief pitchers, uh, all for a total, I think, of, of nine dollars it was romano diekman and classe so so far even though there's no saves there it might work out yeah right and if it doesn't you only spent nine dollars so the rest of your money is spent elsewhere right you're you're going to get a a good return on investment especially in a mono league there because they're going to give you good ratios at the very least and i think that some of i think classe is the guy in cleveland by the way i think he's going to end up with the most saves. i'm with you yeah. Uh, and Diekman, I mean, <laughs> Rosenthal's out of the way now, as you mentioned before. Um, so I, I think that that was the right thing to do because, again, the, the return on investment is return divided by investment. There's two ways to make it big. is to have, A, a big return, which is hard to do, right, or, B, a small investment. When you throw a dollar or two on anything, 
It can't fail. What are you going to do, cut him? Like, it, it, it can't fail. So you might as well put the stuff that has the worst profitability and just throw little dollars or throw the big dollars and bank that value. And I actually put up, I put up a poll on Twitter today, and I asked, who are you more concerned about as closer? I put up, they both, all three of these people had blown staves the other day, Devin Williams, James Karinczyk, and Kenley Jansen. And over 500 people responded, and the response was mind-boggling. People are more concerned about Kenley Jansen than the other two. The, uh, Devin Williams, he only had, both of these guys, Devin Williams and James Karinczyk, only pitched in a short season. So he only saw them for two months. You don't know exactly what you're going to get from those guys. They were really good in those two months. But my thing is, if they already both blew saves... I know they weren't both in the ninth inning. One was in the seventh, one was in the eighth, and I get that. But they, but all three of them blew saves. And the known commodity, the Kenley Jansen, people are more concerned about him than about Karinchik, than about Devin Williams, which just blows my mind. That's interesting. Hmm. I'm amazed. Yeah, that that's weird. I would not think. I would not think that. I would think the op, total opposite. Yeah. All right. Let's time for our waiver wire. Uh, that's where we talk about a couple of potential waiver wire pickups that you might be interested in next week. Let's start with you, Glenn. Who's somebody that you might want to think to snag on with a couple of uh, waiver wire dollars this week? So I've mentioned a couple of these guys. I have two uh, during the course uh, of the podcast earlier. One is we just talked about him, Emmanuel Classe. I mean, over, he's averaging over 100 miles an hour on the fastball. The stuff is filthy, and he's just got better stuff than Whitgren. And they seem, based at least on early managerial you know, usage, to trust him later more than Karinczak. So in, I think in two weeks, you'll never be able to get him. So if you want him, you got to get him now, if at all. Class A was my waiver wire pick for last week on this show. So there you ah, go. I should have I, listened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally agree. I usually do, but I didn't last week. I apologize. <laughs> uh, no, it, uh, I definitely agree with that. Uh, Karinczak uh, walks way too many batters. Uh, Class A has that 9,900-mile-an-hour fastball. He's got the stuff, uh, and the rest of his metrics are fantastic. Um, I mean, he's he's the guy. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that. Uh, Ruvain, how about you, a uh, waiver wire person to pick up? I actually have two. The first one you mentioned earlier is Cedric Mullins. He's hitting amazing right now. He's one of the hottest guys in baseball. He leads off. He, he hit his first homer earlier this week also, so he does give you some pop right there also. And he's only owned in 26% of CBS leagues. How that's possible, it's still the first week of the season, and he's in Baltimore. So people don't always believe in it right away. But he is in Baltimore, and the ball flies out of the stadium during the summer. So I'll, he's a guy I would definitely target to, to pick. Another guy is Colin Morant. We've mentioned before, before last year on this show, he's only owned in 25% of CBS leagues right now. He's eligible at first and third. He's very consistent. He may not he may not have the sexiest line, but he's very consistent. So far this year, he's already batting 280. He's got a couple homers, a couple RBIs. He's going to play every day. He's either going to play first or third. Last year, he was DH only. So now you have a little more flexibility with him, and he's very he's not owned in a lot of leagues. Yeah, Colin Moran, you know, he plays for the Stinky Pirates, but when you're batting cleanup for any team, any team in the major leagues, you're going to get your share of runs and RBIs. And remember, in 5 by 5 Roto, 40% of your offensive categories are runs and RBIs. Hence, uh, Moran makes a lot of sense. Um, I'll mention a couple of guys. We mentioned uh, Badu. He's just interesting. What the heck? Uh, I'll go uh, a couple from the top and, and the bottom. Uh, Evan Longoria got three homers so far in his first six games. He looks pretty hot. If you like playing the hot streak, he's your man. Tyler Naquin, 25% owned. 
Four homers so far. I take the stab. I mentioned Cedric Mullins already. Only 30% owned on CBS. He's batting leadoff. He's 12 for 25 to start the year. And what he hasn't done so much is steal, but he will. Um, he's going to be a great source for stolen bases. If you're in, even in a 12-team league, pick him up. Um, and uh, I like uh, Miguel Rojas. He's 43% owned. He's batting like, right on second in the Marlins lineup. Two stolen bases so far. Batting 278, just a guy that the Marlins really believe in um, and should not be. I, I own him in uh, a bunch of 15-team leagues, a very undervalued player. I love the Cedric Mullins pick. Uh, we, we got him for uh, – we rostered him for a dollar in AL Tout Wars. Took a little bit of a beating from the SiriusXM broadcast crew, talking about the weakness in our outfield and uh, making fun of, of Cedric Mullins and Michael A. Taylor, who would be another one I'd say – is, is someone to target, and, and they've both hit. Michael A. Taylor, this is one of those soft data changes. The swing is quicker. It's got less movement. It's faster to the ball. And, uh, you know, he always had the tools, so that's another one I would take a look at. Uh, that's a great pick. I, I like that. Let's do uh, some pitchers here. In our pitcher preview, that's where we highlight this coming's, this coming week's either two-start pitchers that look good or maybe a key one-start matchup. Ruben, let's start with you. Is there a pitcher to highlight this week? Yeah, I have actually have two of them. First of all, I'm going to go for the deeper league. Actually, they're both for pretty deep. John Gant, he's a possible two-start, and he's relief pitcher eligible. So if you have one of those spots that can only fit a relief pitcher and you want to put a relief pitcher who starts, he's great. The only question is, how long is he going to pitch? He only, in his season opener, he only pitched four innings, but he only gave up one unearned run. He did walk three. So he is a possibility. He's on a decent team. The Cardinals are going to be pretty good this year. So there's a good chance that he's going to go well. But the question is how well and how far he's going to go. And if you want him for wins, I don't know if you can get him for that. But he may help with your ratios because he was a good reliever. He's only 9% owned in CBS. Another guy who's been one of my guys for many years, and I know you can vouch for this, Danny Duffy. He looked good for the season opener. He looked very good. He's a possible two-star for this coming week against Anaheim and Toronto. Not that great starts, but still, in, the, in his first start, he went six innings, gave up two hits and five strikeouts. He looked good, actually. The problem is, if you want him for wins, he's playing for Kansas City, so you may not get that many wins out of him. But he's a guy that you may actually can keep long-term and just play matchup by matchup, just like John Gant also. These are guys that, even though you can pick up this week, you can utilize them later in the, down the road if they have good matchups coming up. Yeah, I like the John Gant pick. Um, you know, he was a starter-turned-reliever-turned-starter. Uh, in the 200 innings pitched that he has since 2018, 3.39 ERA. Strikeout rate, not fantastic at 8, but that'll do it. 47% ground ball rate and only 8% homer to fly ball rate, uh, which over that period of time to me is uh, not just fluky. So it's a guy who gets a lot of ground balls and limits homers. That will keep the downside limited. Uh, so if you're looking for a guy for some innings, and maybe it's just that he it's the beginning of the season that he's only pitching four innings, um, I like St. Louis. So that's that's a nice, sneaky thing for this week and for, uh, for the rest of the season. Uh, what about you, Glenn? Any, uh, anyone to add? Yeah, I'm going to go deep here with a couple of names. Wade Miley. Who, who looked pretty good last time out, always kept the ball you know, on the ground. Swinging strike rate has been getting better. 
gets a home gets a gets a start against San Francisco and then against Cleveland. I think he's at San Francisco and then Cleveland, two teams that are having trouble, you know, hitting the ball. So I, I really like that. And Aaron Sanchez, who's throwing the ball hard, looks like he's throwing free and easy. A home start against Cincinnati. Cincinnati's hitting, but San Francisco a tough place to hit. And then at Miami, Miami not hitting at all right now and a great place to pitch. So those are two deep league two step starters this week. I like those. Uh, you took Miley from what I was going to say. Uh, I'll throw in Dane Dunning. Uh, looks pretty decent with the first uh, game. This uh, this week he's playing at Tampa Bay and versus Baltimore. I think he can eke out a win in some of those. Uh, so far, one run, three hits in five innings with six strikeouts. Uh, yeah, I think somebody that you can take a gamble on, 30% owned uh, for more deeper leagues, I would say. Uh, by the way, I looked up Matt Boyd. He's only 54% owned on CBS. He should be universally owned. He looked phenomenal in his first couple of uh, starts. 12 innings, 2, two ERA, 1-1 one, one whip. Um, if, if Matt Boyd is somehow available in your league, instant snatch-up. And he's Great a first-half pitcher. He's a first-half pitcher, so he does well in the first half. I would look to build him up, maybe even trade him, get something for him. Although, make but remember, Matt Boyd is likely to end up pitching in, in, on a good team and a different team uh, by the time you get to July, late July and August. So there may be some rejuvenation or uh, you know more opportunity for wins as he ends up on a team that's going to be better than Detroit. Then the truth is that I think the Detroit lineup is not as bad as people think. Uh, I think they've got a lot of promising guys, and uh, I don't think they're one of the weakest teams in, in the league in terms of scoring. Probably not, but he ends up, but with, with all the young pitching they have, I think they move him. Now, good point, good point. Got one mailbag question. It's from JT, who asks, I guess appropriate for this show, can you talk about the strategy and execution of drafting as two-person teams in auction drafts? I guess uh, we all can because we both uh, – very frequently drafting partners. So start with you, Glenn. What, what, what can you talk about your uh, what you do uh, roughly with uh, Rick? Yeah, no, look, absolutely. Um, you know, it's called Colton and the Wolfman for a reason. So we do what I want to do. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally <laughs> kidding. Um, no, in all seriousness, it's you need to really prepare and you need to have a plan and you need to be on the same page because there's no time to talk about what to do. You know, you have to, one person has to do the bidding and one person has to know what the team wants to do. So you need to know this is our budget, this is our plan B, this is our plan C, and this is our valuation on the players. And one of the ways we accomplish being to get being you know, able to get through all the players is we have our, our smart system and rules of engagement. You can have, you want to use that system, that'd be great. We're thrilled to, to, to have see people follow us. But if not, just whatever your system is, stick to that system and, and it will help you not only during the auction, but it'll help you get rid of um, having to spend time on players you know aren't within your system or your way of doing things. Um, and the other thing I would say is you have to have your roles during the auction or during the salary cap draft. So I do the bidding, Rick charts the the projections and what the other teams are doing. So invariably there'll be a time where he says to me, only two other teams need a, a second baseman or only one other team is really desperate for a closer or whatever he may say. So it's stuff that I wouldn't be able to do on my own. So if you're going to be two people, Divide up the work so you can actually accomplish more during the auction than the one-man or one-person teams. 
thousand percent. Uh, Ruben and I do something similar. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, we, we we split up the tasks differently. I do the in live auctions. I do the bidding. In online auctions, actually, Ruvain's the guy who does the bidding. Um, in terms of the charting, the stuff, well, that that's me. I go through the numbers. But in terms of looking for what team needs what, that's Ruvain. Uh, the one key component that Ruvain does, which is the biggest uh, thing that I think we do that most people don't pay attention, is the nominations. You can extract so much value from the room by the order of your nominations. And, and I don't buy that, well, you're only one out of 12 or one out of 15 teams. The way you order it really, really, really makes a difference. Um, and, you know, n knowing to slice up tiers and knowing where to get the to nominate the top guy on board, when to know when you need to throw out somebody you want to get or or potentially could get and when you need to extract money from the room and how best to do it, right? Don't just throw a top guy and say, well, this guy go for a lot, the top guy on board, throw him out, that'll get more money. Maybe for that one play, but over the next couple of picks, if you get people's mind off of uh, pitchers and onto hitters, that might be the way to go. Picking the fourth best hitter in a tier might be better than getting the first because once that fourth guy goes, the next three might follow. So it's a there's a strategy of nomination that Ruvain does as well. Anything to add to that, Ruvain? Yes, we should also play to each other's strengths. Don't try not to overlap everything you do. If someone is more or does more research on the prospects and someone else does more research on the other thing, try not to overlap and just trust each other and don't get into fights. You have to work as a team. You can't butt heads, especially when it comes to the draft. You have to be on the same page. Otherwise, the whole draft will go awry. How do you work player conflicts, Glenn? So, you know, if I'm higher on a player than Ruvain and or Ruvain's higher on a player, then usually it comes, you know, if how strong I feel or how strong Ruvain feels or we'll talk it out and either come to a medium or I'll take his side or what. How do you resolve conflicts between Rick? So, so there's a couple of different things. One, we will hash it out. Um, and sometimes very quickly, you know, one will just say, all right, you know, We'll do it that way, and that'll be the end of it. If if there's a serious debate, we'll go back and forth. We'll we'll look up stuff, and and you know you've heard me say this. I'll pull out the uh, ATC projections, and he'll pull out like somebody else's projections, and we'll just debate these things, and we'll look at all kinds of stats. But here's the key: once the decision is made, it's our valuation. It's our guy, or it's not our guy. There's no ever i mean in 20 years we've never said oh well we got stuck with that guy because of you or you know oh because of me we got this great pick it's ours and you know we have the whole top gun rules of engagement thing and there's a scene in the movie where maverick says i just happen to see a mig 28 and goose says we sorry goose we happen to see a mig 28 it's always we so that's uh, that to me is is a very very big part of it and the other part is we have vetoes it's just a guy we don't want so justin turner i just refuse to have him roster him on my fantasy team i'm so bothered so just viscerally offended by his behavior in exposing his teammates just to do a celebration that he's just not going to be on any of our teams and rick just says okay go next right right no i i agree and and your point about the team is we is 
a thousand percent. You you can't do it any other way. And the truth of the matter is that if you play in a team for a while, it, it's second nature. You don't have to think to 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 not do that. You know, you 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 second handed you, you uh, second nature of, of just doing that. Um, very interesting though, like about the player debate that you will debate them and have vetoes. I think for us it's a little bit different because what we do is we start with the ATC base, and then the question is. Is there a reason to go up or down from it? And so, you know, if Ruvain feels strongly about a guy, okay, you know, he'll debate the side and whether we'll pull it up from ATC. And uh, maybe I'll feel very strongly against a guy, and I'll think of the reasons why to pull down. And then we'll adjust the projections, come up with a number, and, you know, those are the new numbers that you're comfortable with. So it's it's we, – we have them. It's not like we're coming to a middle ground. We have the middle ground set with the ATC values. It's just a question of how strongly do we feel feel different and to argue off of the middle. Interesting, right? That That is interesting. And look, one of the reasons we don't have to do that much of that is so many players fail to meet our filter in the smart system and the rules of engagement that, that we're, we just know they're not going to be on our team for whatever reason. The players who, you know, big money contracts in new places, the injury prone players, you, you know, the, uh, the Tatis types who've never played a full season despite all their talents. So we can cross off 40% of the uh, of the league, not because we wouldn't be willing to take them at any price, but there's in the leagues we play in, they'll never fall to the level we're willing to go. So it, it gives us more time on the players we really need to spend the time, uh, you know, evaluating. Yeah, and, and I think that that's a good way to do it. I think that a lot of people are less efficient with their time, and they want to go through every single player in the pool. And the truth of the matter is that um, you're best off really honing in on a, some percentage of the pool, whether it's 40% or whatever your threshold is, and learning that percent well, the thing, the players that you think that you're going to get uh, at a better price than what the market's giving you, or, or I should say the uh, uh, where you're higher than where the market is. Um, and not you don't have to – if you think a player is, is going way higher than it should – why, why talk about it at all? It's just a waste of your time. Be, be efficient there, and this way you can save your time to learn more about the players you do want to go and to debate and to really hone in on the value and, and the direction and the plan of what you want to do. Anything to add, Ruvain? No, I think you both hit it on the head pretty succinctly. Good stuff. Glenn, this was, this was, this was fantastic. Uh, really glad that you came on the show today. Um, before we let you go, why don't you just tell everybody where uh, we can follow your work and where we can uh, reach you and read you and all things Glenn Colton. Sure, appreciate that. Well, every Tuesday night, 10 to midnight on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, it's Colton the Wolfman with uh, Rick Wolf and myself. Always a lot of fun there, and I hope you uh, tune in, Sirius 210, XM87. You can catch uh, columns week that was. I'll be starting that back up uh, hopefully soon on FantasyAlarm.com, and you can catch me on Twitter at Glenn Colton one That's Glenn with two N's, as our friend Nando DeFino likes to point out. Glenn Colton one Definitely. Um, if you don't, if you have not caught uh, the Colton and the Wolfman show on SiriusXM, you should get SiriusXM to listen. It's a phenomenal show. They get uh, some of the best experts in town talk about strategy, some stuff I've learned from you guys, some stuff that maybe I listen and I might not agree with it, but I love hearing it because I there is a strategy that works with it, and uh, it just just great ideas flow through on the show, and you have fun. You do movies and and stars every week, so it's uh, you get some fantasy and some fun on the show yeah we try thank you so much we appreciate uh always appreciate the positive feedback we'll have to get you on the show real soon and then we'll have fun together sounds good uh Ruvain, why don't you uh tell us uh, where we can see your work 
You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates daily on a daily basis, such as the fact that Tim Anderson is on the IL. He's 85%. He'll come back soon. James Paxton, elbow forearm issue after 24 pitches. Be'd worry about that. Trevor Rosenthal, we've mentioned him. He had thoracic outlet surgery, so he's basically done. George Springer, oblique strain, now a quad strain. That's not good at all. Cole Calhoun and both Trent Grisham set to come back in the next 10 days. AJ Puck, left bicep strain, stay away from him. And Sonny Gray will be coming back soon also, so you don't have to worry about it. But you can see, you can read all this stuff as well on my Rotoborler Weekly article as well. Yes. Sorry, Ruben. I didn't queue up your uh, the uh, injury report today. I'm so sorry about that. That's that's fine. That's fine. I, I got I got in what I needed to say. Brilliantly but, done. How you brought that in there, Ruben. Very yeah, well. Yeah, I gotta gotta wedge it in somehow. That's all. Good stuff. Yeah, read read Ruben's article every week and uh, follow his Twitter feed. I mean, uh, the, we're we're not talking about some random fantasy guy. We're talking about a guy who has diagnosed Tommy John surgery and deals with uh, obliques and deals with uh, uh, leg injuries all day long. He knows that timetables because he treats them on a daily basis um i mean uh, f- fantastic knowledge I, I i can't tell you how much uh Ruvain's depth really helps and you know part of having a partner in fantasy when you're having an injury expert that that that's a big advantage so thank you Ruvain. no problem and i can't count how many times i've had to examine you after you get softball injuries as well <laughs> well our opening day in softball starts this sunday i am pitching uh, we lost last year in the semifinals uh, in 11 innings. Oh, we left mm. the bases loaded three times in the game. Sounds that like is... the Mets. <laughs> I was going to say, Giancarlo Stanton must be on your team. <laughs> I, I wish. Uh, <laughs> well, I went five for five in that playoff game, but that Not didn't uh, – yeah, I wasted that one. Anyways, uh, that's it for our show. Once again, thank you so much, uh, Glenn Colton, for coming on the show. From all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.